Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 10th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Tuesday's budget came as cold comfort to hundreds of thousands of people who have been frozen out of the economic recovery in Ireland. That's according to Social Justice Ireland, which says the government is repeating what it did last year and the result will see vulnerable people fall further behind. As is always the case on budget day and after budget day, we'll hear claims and counterclaims and people will focus on one aspect of the budget and say it's not enough or say that something else was left out. I understand that's how criticism works on budget day. But while people are entitled to their own opinions, uh, they're not entitled to their own facts. And one of the differences in the budget this year is a publication that was released yesterday, Budget 2024, Beyond GDP, a Quality of Life Assessment. And this is all about the whole process of equality budgeting. And I think it is significant to draw the House's attention to uh, page 12 for anyone interested in the facts as to how this budget impacts on different people. So this shows the impact of the budget on the different deciles. Those who benefit the most are in the poorest 10% uh, of the population and those who benefit the least are in the richest 10% of the population. When you break it down by household, the type of household that benefits the most is a household headed by a lone parent. And these are the facts. Anything else is opinion. Let's talk about the facts and we might hear some opinion for that matter. Michelle Murphy is Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. A very good morning to you, Michelle, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We were listening to Thishak Leo Vradker speaking in the Dáil yesterday there. What do you make of what he said? Good morning, Michael. Yes, there are facts. And yes, the fact is when you take the budget in the round, including all measures, you see the bulk. You see uh, proportionally more at the bottom 10%. But what the Taoiseach didn't say is when you strip out the temporary measures, the bulk of the gains go to the better off. And it's not just us who have pointed that out. The Parliamentary Budget Office on Budget Night also pointed that out. So, you know... That is the case. For example, Michael, if you take a single pensioner in the budget, 48% of what they got is temporary, which means they will not get it again in 2025. If you take a single person with a job at €30,000, more than half of what they got was temporary, which means they won't get it again in 2025. And for some of them, they won't get it again after April next year. Looking at a single person with a job at €100,000, 
only 26% of their gain was temporary, which is the energy credits. So, Michael, that is the difference. You can look at it in the round and Mm. all of the money, but when you look at what are the temporary measures, which are the double welfare payments, which are welcome, the energy credits, the one-off payments to, you know, certain, you know, the blind pension, certain pensionary cohorts, the double child benefit payments. Those are welcome, but they are one-off. But the what does that mean when, when, when you permanent. when you say vulnerable people are going to fall further behind? Does that mean they might fall further behind in twenty twenty five? No, in twenty. If I can just finish the question in twenty twenty five, but they should be okay this year because these one off measures uh, will shield the blow. No, uh, we already pointed out that. So, if you look at welfare payments, they're not linked to wages or inflation. So, since twenty twenty one. Um, the real, well, prior to that, but take 2021, the real value of what, you know, your core, what was the core welfare rate at the time, which was 208 euro, the real value of that was actually 195 because of the loss of purchasing power. We're now in 2023. So we've had two more years of significant inflation. So already people on a pension or and particularly actually it's particularly older people michael and older people living alone and people with a disability they are very vulnerable and their purchasing power has already been eroded and we were very clear and it's not just us multiple other organizations said the very minimum that was required was 25 euros in the budget that's the very minimum just for people to stand still they got 12 which means in real terms in terms of your purchasing power in terms of when you go to the shop and you do your weekly shopping and mm. what your money will get you uh, because inflation is five percent this year two and a half at least next year it's not falling it's still increasing it means you your money will get you less so you are falling further behind because you are not you're not in the workforce you know you're not going to be part of the public mm. sector pay well, that, that's, that's, that's not particularly increase. fair though michelle is it a, i mean yes you'll get a, a 12 euro I- increase uh, in your pension but if you're living alone uh, as a pensioner you're going to see an increase of about three thousand euro all told this year are you not uh, yes, and one in every three people living alone over 65 is living in poverty. One of the real success stories of this country was the fact, and if people remember back to the 80s, the very high levels of poverty for older people, one of the real success stories of the state was we were actually able to reduce that. What's really concerning is poverty among older people has been rising and rising significantly since 2020. And there has been no indication that government can understand the impact that that has on older people. Because your bills, Michael, are not one-off. You don't just get one gas bill or one electricity bill, or you don't just fill up your oil tank once. You have to do that. You know, that your bills are not one-off. They're continual. Your food shop is not one-off. It's continual. Mm. You, you, can, you can't just not turn your lights on and not turn the heat on. So it's really disingenuous to say, and I mean, this is part of the communications machine that we saw last year after the budget, and we're seeing it again, which is, I suppose, mixing together temporary one-off measures. They're one-off. You only get them once. You don't get them multiple times. With the actual overall changes within the budget and what those overall changes mean for people. And if you're on a fixed income, if you're a carer, a person with a disability, we're at full employment, so the number of people claiming unemployment is actually quite low if you're a pensioner. So those are the real people mm. being impacted by this. You're, the only time that you get an opportunity to see an increase in your income is that is during the budget. And after that, you have to budget well, that's our, that's our, that's our, that's after you retire. Uh, but if that, if that is the case, that is because you didn't make provision for your older years when you were younger and you were working. 
Uh, I mean, a lot of so, pensioners are very, very comfortable. They own their own house. A lot they, ha- they have savings. They have uh, private pensions. Uh, and they won't be worried about €12 Euro or an increase uh, in the fuel allowance or any yeah, of these and they things. they won't these be reliant yeah. on the private pension, yeah. absolutely. So but if there people, are those if people that are very reliant on it. But if people weren't so, responsible enough to make provision for their older years, why should they be bailed out now by the government? Well, if women were forced to leave the workforce because of the marriage bar, that was not their fault that they don't have sufficient pension entitlement now. They didn't choose to leave the workforce. They were told they had to leave the workforce. I mean, it's up to us as mm. a state. Surely the very, the very least the state can do is ensure that its most vulnerable citizens have a basic standard of living. Mm. And what we're seeing here is that we're not. If, you, if we have the Taunista and the Taoiseach having to go out and... And, you know, I'm really happy that actually there is a well-being and equality budgeting. And, you know, I think it's um, testament to the work that we do and other organisations pointing out the disparities in income distribution that the Taoiseach has to stand up in the doyle and actually, for once, account for where the income distribution goes. That is really positive. At least government is taking it seriously. But what they need to do is look at where their money is going and are they spending it wisely. I mean, if you take the energy credit, for example, and how much that's going to cost, how can you? How can government tell you or I or your listeners that all of the civil servants in the Department of Social Protection, public expenditure, the Department of Finance and the Revenue Commissioners could not come up with a way to target that better? We're not the only people who said it's a complete waste of money. The ESRI have said it, the Central Bank, the OECD, the Parliamentary Budget Office, it's not targeted in any way, shape or form. If you read, and it's, if it's supposed to be an energy support measure, then maybe you should be looking at people in arrears, for example, and targeting those rather than letting them push further into debt. But that hasn't been done. And I suppose what we're trying to say is, if you look at the resources we have in the state and the, the supplementary windfall resources that we have in the state, I mean, do we have a long-term plan? Are we actually spending them wisely? Are we actually going to do the things that will improve standards of living and reduce costs? That's build more social homes mm. and take control of our renewable energy so that we can actually control the cost of our energy and bring down bills for people. We didn't see that on Tuesday. Mm. Uh, although uh, bills obviously uh, will be cheaper or more affordable because of uh, these one-off payments, uh, the three 150s. Uh, the Taoiseach, uh, in a speech yesterday, made the point uh, that the government set out to reward work Uh, But uh, he also said that there was a a, a substantial welfare package so that older people, carers, people on disability payments uh, and lone parents get the help that they need uh, with a focus on children, which uh, you raised as a concern. Uh, because the government has, in fairness, done quite a, a lot when you look at school books, uh, college fees, childcare costs uh, and some of the other measures that are in this budget. Yeah, and we we really welcome the fact that the teachers set up a child poverty and wellbeing unit, that they published their work plan in August this year, and that they identified, you know, they, ident- they identified areas for progress, areas where they could improve, excuse me, children's wellbeing and, you know, bring children out of poverty in those areas where income excuse me, income and joblessness, mm. you know, access to services, childcare, education, housing. That's really positive. And, you know, the Taoiseach was on record multiple times before the budget saying it was going to be a child poverty budget. But when you look at the budget, children don't live on their own. They live in low-income families. People earning between 15 and 20 euros an hour gained the least out of the budget again. This is not just a one-off thing. The 
they gain the least out of tax changes. This mm. is the fourth year in a row they've gained little to nothing from the tax changes. And even in terms of those in the working family payment, you know, we'd ask that at least they be, they be entitled to the fuel allowance. That decision wasn't made. If you look at the children living in families in poverty, there was changes to the qualified child rates, and those are welcome, and we welcomed those. Mm. But if you look at the adult rates, the you know the relevant changes weren't made there and that's the thing if you can't get those incomes above the poverty line and children who live in poverty they're more likely to be experiencing deprivation in adults if they're in yeah. employment their pay is lower you know we mm. we all know those issues but those are minimum pay from the school people on minimum pay will have 54 euro a week extra Yes, the minimum wage has gone up. We really welcome that. It's the biggest increase since the minimum wage was actually introduced. But the government has committed to a living wage over the lifetime of the government. We didn't see any progress on that. And that's very disappointing. We didn't see tax credits being made refundable for those workers on low pay. Those workers who are not going to benefit from changes to the tax plans and get very little out of the changes to the USC or the increased tax credit. And there's no focus on targeting those. The child book scheme, yes, really, really welcome, as is the expansion of the hot meals, the you know, the waiver on school transport fees, the one off reduction to student contributions and the changes to child benefit to children still in full time secondary education. Yes, they are welcome. But overall, if you look at child poverty in the round in terms of access to services, in terms of income support, in terms of housing pieces, they didn't mm. deliver there. And we're not the only one. I mean, the Children's Rights Alliance were mm. saying, you know, mm. they didn't deliver in the key areas that will support families. Well, housing, uh, I think, uh, probably uh, is the biggest crisis uh, the government uh, has been looking at over a period of 15 years and nothing new announced on Tuesday. Were you disappointed by that? Really disappointed. I mean, given, because that is such a big driver of cost, Michael. Like the cost of housing is such a huge driver in terms of the living wage calculation, in terms of driving minimum wage increases, even in terms of now the public sector pay talks that are going to take place. I mean, the cost of housing is going to have a huge bearing on those. And if you look over the past 10 years, so property prices have risen by 75%, rents, private rents by 90%, but wages have risen by just 27%. I mean, that's so stark. Housing is just out of reach. The cost of a home is out of reach for so many people. And we didn't, you know, we didn't see anything in the budget, an extension of the renter's tax credit, you know, a tax relief for landlords. But we didn't see anything that's actually going to deliver homes. You know, we have, what, almost 7 billion surplus revenue. And we didn't see the investment in construction, particularly social and affordable housing that we need. And that's so incredibly disappointing and because you know we're looking into a period of time where we've been told it's full employment you know economic growth is slowing down that's what government is saying you know those are projections we're still growing but not as fast as we were but if we can't get to grips with the price of housing and being able to provide accommodation for people pressure on wages pressure on social welfare rates all those other pressures are not going to go away they're just going to keep growing and it's just really disappointing when we do actually for once as a state don't have to borrow that money we actually have that money available to us we seem to be unable 
to invest it where we need it most. All right, Michelle, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Michelle Murphy, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, yesterday, the day after the budget, you'd have expected doll business uh, to have uh, been dominated by statements relating to the budget. And it, it was, uh, but it wasn't the only issue discussed uh, because uh, the Middle East is on fire. So now, as we speak, Israel's retaliation and collective punishment of Gaza is already underway. Israeli rockets rain down hell on an impoverished, beleaguered refugee population, half of whom are children. In the face of this overwhelming military bombardment, they have no food, no medical infrastructure, no electricity, no fuel, and no way out. Innocent men, women, and children stare annihilation in the eye. So the international community now faces an immediate test of its commitment to peace, justice, and the upholding of democracy and self-determination. Taoiseach, we need ceasefires, dialogue, and the enforcement of international law. We need to see an end to the cycle of violence, an end to the occupation, and an end to the apartheid. Sinn Féin President Mary Lou Macdonald, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, was, it has to be said, just as concerned. I uh, want to reiterate Ireland's total condemnation of the attack by Hamas and other militant groups on Israel and the devastating uh, loss of life that it has caused. Uh, civilians were targeted, young people, older people, children, peace activists killed or taken hostage. In these circumstances, Israel has the right to defend itself. It is surrounded by enemies, many of whom want to see Israel wiped off the map, or as they say, from the mountains to the sea. It's critical that this is done within the parameters of international humanitarian law, with a response that is proportionate, and protection of civilians and de-escalation must be a priority. Uh, Israel has united itself in response to these attacks and Israel is gaining a lot of solidarity uh, from other parts of the world. But I believe that will evaporate, and evaporate very quickly, if the Israeli response in Gaza and elsewhere is disproportionate. So there must be restraint, there must be no attacks on civilian infrastructure. If it's unacceptable for the President of Russia uh, to target power stations and civilian, civilian infrastructure in Ukraine, then the same must apply to the Israeli government and the actions it's, it takes uh, on targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure in Gaza. Yeah, I suppose it's not too often uh, that Leo Bradker and Mary Lou MacDonald are on the same page. Uh, the Taoiseach and Sinn Féin president uh, agreeing on most of uh, what was said about the situation in Gaza yesterday. I, I very much uh, welcome your confirmation of the fact that uh, aid will continue to the Palestinian people and also your insistence quite correctly that the rule of law be applied equally without fear or favour and that the Israeli state is not exempt uh, to the rules which apply uh, to all others and that the Palestinian people have rights that are inalienable and that must be vindicated. Uh, Not just now in a time of acute conflict but always. And here's the problem, Taoiseach, you see, for far too long, day in, day out, week in, month in, year in and year out, 
The Palestinian experience has been one of desertion by the international community. And I think now has to be a moment where we see a step change, where we see clarity of purpose and leadership, and where it is made clear to everybody, including Mr. Netanyahu and his administration, including to all concerned in the Israeli state, that they cannot play fast and loose as a, a rogue state in violating again and again Thank the most you, basic rights the of the Palestinian up, people. And that may be the problem, but what is the solution? The baseline position of the Irish government uh, is that we can only bring peace to the region um, through a two-state solution. I think that becomes increasingly difficult with every day that passes, with every settlement that is built, but we still believe uh, that the best solution, the only solution, um, that will bring peace to the region uh, is a two-state solution, and that's the outcome uh, which we support and we strongly support. There has to be a willingness uh, on both sides um, for that to be the case. Uh, and you've called out uh, the Prime Minister of Israel and what would appear to be his unwillingness to engage meaningfully uh, in peace talks in the way his predecessors did, whether it was Ariel Sharon or Yitzhak Rabin or Ehud Barak, all sought a two-state solution, but it has to come from the other side too. Uh, and I don't see that leadership um, in Palestine. I certainly don't see it from Hamas. And Hamas is hell-bent on the destruction of Israel, on wiping Israel off the face of the earth. And they must change that policy. They must renounce terrorism. Uh, they must renounce uh, violence as a means to achieve their political objectives, just as people did on this island. Uh, and that's what we expect to see from them. And the leader of uh, the Labour Party, Ivana Bacic, is equally concerned. The thought of an Irish citizen, Kim Dante, being among those who are now missing and whose safety is unknown, that's unbearable. And our thoughts, the thoughts of all of us, I think, in this House, certainly those of us in the Labour Party, our thoughts are with her family and with all those affected. Our thoughts are also with the people of Gaza today. At the weekend, we in Labour called for restraint to be used by Israel in response to the Hamas attack. But since then, we've all watched in grave dismay as Israel has unleashed missile attacks on Gazan residential areas, has cut off vital services to the civilian population, has effectively placed the people of Gaza under siege indefinitely, it seems, with over a million children now being subject to collective punishment in Gaza without any way of escape. And these actions by Israel must also be condemned outright. Indeed, both the Hamas attack and the Israeli response have already resulted in thousands of civilian deaths and we're seeing the region being plunged again into a terrible abyss of violence with neither side to benefit and civilians bearing the brunt. Yeah, Ivana Bakic, leader of uh, the Labour Party, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday before the death of Kim Dante was announced last night. The young Irish-Israeli woman, Kim Dante, is to be buried today. And Palestinian people... Um, do have the right uh, to self-determination uh, and to seek the establishment of their own state, their own homeland. That does not extend to attacking music festivals, taking hostages, attacking children, um, the kind of things that Hamas has done, which fundamentally undermines the cause of the Palestinian people and weakens their case uh, for statehood. Um, and when it comes to Israel, um, what they are doing in Gaza is not acceptable either. Um, it's not okay to cut off power supplies to civilian populations. It's not okay to cut off the water. Um, and it's not okay to target uh, civilian infrastructure. Um, and I think we're all very clear on that in this House uh, across uh, the different parties. And it's a good thing in Ireland that we can have 
at least that level of consensus uh, on this issue. Next, we'll hear from People Before Profit TD, Richard Boyd Barrett, who appeared in uh, the doll yesterday wearing a PLO scarf. Taoiseach, you said it is not OK for Israel to attack civilians, attack civilian infrastructure, uh, to threaten to starve the people of Gaza. It most certainly isn't okay. It's a war crime. The Israeli government have brazenly, publicly, and openly declared their intention to commit a war crime and have commenced that war crime against the people of Gaza, saying that they intend to starve of food, electricity, water, 2.2 million people. That is a war crime under the Fourth Geneva Convention. They are raining down thousands of the most sophisticated missiles known to humanity onto the most densely populated area in the world, carrying the certainty that almost every missile will incur civilian casualties, will and are destroying the infrastructure, the water infrastructure, the energy, making Gaza uninhabitable. And using, in very credible reports, as they did in the past, chemical weapons, white phosphorus, being used by Israel. And you try to suggest there is some symmetry, some equivalence, between the actions of Hamas and what Israel has been doing to the Palestinians for decades. Will you admit that the terrible loss of life and escalation of violence that we have seen in the last few days is simply a continuation of the crimes against humanity, the war crimes of the state of Israel against the people of Palestine. So while there was much agreement amongst Irish politicians yesterday, it wasn't a consensus. And I know your support for Palestine is sincere, but I am a little bit disappointed that you haven't said anything about Hamas or Hezbollah or any of their actions uh, in your remarks. In fairness to Deputy MacDonald, she did, as a Deputy Batchik, and I would like to give you this opportunity to add to what you said earlier, not to take any of it back, but just to add to what you said earlier by saying that you accept that Israel has the right to exist, um, that has a right to uh, sovereignty and statehood and security, and that you agree that the actions of Hamas and Hezbollah for decades, uh, targeting Israeli civilians, kidnapping Israelis and others, that those actions are wrong have contributed to the conflict and have made it harder to find a solution. Leo Vratker and Richard Boyd Barrett not seeing eye to eye. I, I am disappointed in your remarks. Yes. Uh, you, you, you mentioned UN resolutions. Israel was established by UN resolution. You didn't say that. Uh, Israel is a sovereign state. Um, it is the closest thing to a democracy in that region. It has a right to exist. Uh, it has a right to defend itself. And, and, and you, may, you may describe it as... Please, the Taoiseach without... As, the Taoiseach without interruption, please. And you may well describe it as an apartheid state, but let me ask, let, let, let me ask you this. Um, you and I could live our lives freely in Israel. Me as a gay man, you as revolutionary socialists, neither of us would be able to live our lives freely uh, in Gaza. We wouldn't because of the oppression 
that would be imposed on people like you and me. That's uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and that uh, interaction with People Before Profits, Richard Boyd Barrett. Uh, I'm sure that there's very few people who would want to live in Gaza now. And uh, I think, uh, as we heard earlier on, uh, everybody in the House yesterday very concerned uh, about uh, their fate with uh, this ongoing onslaught, this siege and what looks like uh, a land war about uh, to start with uh, the Israeli army about to go into Gaza and God knows what. If you'd like to make a comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp us if you have something to say. 0861800658, the number to say it on. Or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Irish Country Living is reporting on cocaine this week and the first of a two-part investigation into the use of cocaine and its impact on young people and indeed on farms and the trail of devastation that it is leaving behind as well as the long path to recovery. The paper reports that Irish people are the joint fourth highest consumers of cocaine globally and that's according to a United Nations report. Let's speak speak to Margaret Hawkins who's health correspondent with Irish Country Living. Good morning Margaret, thanks for joining us on the programme this morning and you're reporting that cocaine is available at every crossroads, down rural lanes, accessible everywhere in the country for that matter. Yeah, that's the reality of it. Unfortunately, it's uh, a huge concern. And the person I interviewed from Ashiree has just seen the increase in the use and the abuse of it and the consequences of all that. It's, I suppose it's, it's um, in the past it might have been perceived as something for, as she describes it, being a cheeseboard element at the end of middle-class parties a long time ago. But now it's everywhere and I think when I was writing this um, this article, it was just a day or so before the huge haul, you know, the seizure of cocaine off our coast. So like 157 million, if we ever needed proof that, you know, it's out there and it's accessible and available in quantity, um, that was it. But you're talking about people buying cocaine in rural areas and sometimes isolated areas. How does it work? Yeah, it, it seems to work. Um, from my, my understanding, is through social media, you know, the popular platforms, and there's a code word, if you know, you know, and you can put it out there that you need some, and it can be delivered 24-7. It's not like an off-license that for alcohol that closes. It's um, just very available in every area, so there, it, it's um, that's where the problem is, the accessibility. It wasn't mm. accessible years ago and it is now. Yeah, and you don't need to drive to the off-licence. Uh, the dealer will come to you. Yes, that's the problem and, and that compounds into a huge issue. You know, um, as time goes on, everyone who starts taking it, or I suppose any drug, you think you're bulletproof at the beginning. You know that it's great and it's wonderful and makes you feel so-and-so and and it's um, something you need to enjoy yourself or whatever. But then very rapidly it turns into going from something good to being your worst nightmare. And from what I understand from from both um, the people I interviewed, the people who are dealing with residential treatment and non-residential, 
the the time frame between when you start and when you get into real trouble is very short. It's really from kind of 18 until you're 24, 25. That's when they're seeing people. You know, alcohol doesn't seem to happen so quickly if, if you do become addicted to it. So there's that fast pace of it um, that can be quite shocking. Mm, it's a very addictive and indeed it can be a very dangerous drug. It can lead to overdose and death for that matter. Uh, when you talk about young people uh, using it between 18 and 24, uh, that, that that's the kind of cohort we're talking about between 18 and 30 really, I think you're reporting yes. in the yes. paper this week. Uh, what, what kind of consumption levels are, are we talking about? Are, are we talking about people using it every day? Are we talking about people getting out of the bed and taking cocaine and continuing to take it until they go to bed at night? Well, it, it starts off with taking it in social situations and from everybody I spoke to, it was related to alcohol. It was kind of offered or introduced in that kind of context, environment. And then, of course, with any drug, you need more of it in order to get the same effect. But in farming-related um, situations, what can happen is that when farmers are very, very busy, as you know, they use it to try and keep them awake, to manipulate their mood, to manipulate their, their um, just their ability to work longer hours, which is hugely dangerous on the driving front, of course. Um, so that's it's, if somebody's addicted to it, you know, the, the need for it is great all the time and that increases over time. So it turns into a nightmare. Uh, an expensive nightmare, I take it. Yes, a very expensive nightmare and from what I can understand is that, you know, people can hide their addiction for a while, you know, if they have a few bob, if they have money, uh, but then uh, they get into debt with the dealers. There seems to be uh, um, that they're able to to um, owe the money for it and this is where the problems arise. Uh, the pers- Everybody I spoke to talked of, of debts of up to 30,000 but it's usually kind of 1,500 or 2,000 but if you haven't got that money, you know, you're going to be chased for that money mm. and your family is obviously inevitably going to be involved in it and the implications just for, for them with the worry and the stress and the mm. debt is huge. We're very accustomed to how drug dealers try to uh, get their debts paid in towns with petrol bombs and intimidation and violence and all sorts of threats uh, against family members. We've heard of uh, families being told that because the son owes money, uh, the daughter will be raped unless the money is paid back and that sort of thing. Uh, what, what, what's the situation in rural areas? Well, from what I've, I've learned, is you know, there are quite similar situations where, you know, there are fires, there are stones thrown through windows, people arriving in the yard, and just absolutely terrifying for the family. You know, the fear is there mixed up with the, the, the worry and the debt if they don't have the money, you know, to, to pay the, the um, dealer. But there are situations, you know, if somebody's deep in addiction, even if one dealer is paid off, you know, it can happen that they go to somebody else. So until you get to the point where you realise you need help, and there is help out there, and that's a huge message from these two articles, that there is a way out of it and to look for that. And I suppose the earlier, the better. But some people maybe don't do that until um, it's a bit late. 
But families can look for support as well because they actually need counselling support. And when a person does go into treatment, when it's um, a residential treatment, when the person is really in the trenches with addiction, the, the family is treated as well and afterwards for a long time to try and, ex, you know, to support them to deal with it. And the person's, I suppose, they look at what caused them to get addicted in the first place and to try and tease out all those particular issues because the likes of cocaine um, dealers are offering it, you know, people who are vulnerable um, for whatever reason, you know, things went bad, bullying, trauma in their lives, difficulties, you know, they're looking for some kind of an escape for it or to feel better. But it, it's, um, it, it plays on those vulnerabilities, yeah. but you can get over it. And it was just wonderful to speak to, to the person who said that you can see a person walking into a centre, uh, you know, looking half dead because of all the worry and the lack of sleep and everything. And then when they're going out, you know, they're actually smiling mm. that they've like taken their lives back. And that that's absolutely wonderful to see Very for good. the family mm. as well. Cause they're, okay. they're really getting back into the stream of life some, properly again. Some, some, some optimism there, I suppose, uh, uh, on thought of what uh, is now a uh, dreadful reality of life in rural Ireland. Margaret, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Margaret Hoggins is the health correspondent for Irish Country Living. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, Whatever about uh, being uh, addicted to cocaine and that being an expensive habit, uh, cigarettes uh, may be even more expensive. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, cocaine compares in price, but 16.75 a pack now since Tuesday's budget. Let's speak to Benny Gilson, spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling. A very good morning to you, Benny. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I think most people in the country will be delighted at how expensive it is to smoke in this country in the hope that it'll deter people from smoking. Uh, but do you believe that we're shooting ourselves in the foot? Well, of course we are, Michael. Uh, you know, uh, like if we, if we don't tackle the illegal problem that we have with uh, tobacco and tobacco products, uh, there'll be no such thing as the legitimate product for the government or revenue to put any more tax onto because there would be nobody buying them. We're getting now to the stage, like uh, the last time I was talking to you, I had said to you that we had a situation gone from 16% uh, to 34% between smuggled and duty-free cigarettes coming into the country. So that, that puts us into a position of more than one-third of tobacco products smoked in Ireland today are non duty paid. Right. And would you see a, a drop in sales of up to one third in shops around the country? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And in some some instances, more, Michael. In some instances, more. Uh, and varying from time to time, you will get it when you see people going abroad, you see a, a, a huge drop for a week or 10 days after they return. And you, you see that that uh, trend is growing on a continuous space because it's so easy now to get a flight from Dublin to London, Dublin to Liverpool, Dublin to Birmingham, Dublin to Glasgow, Dublin to Cardiff, and pick up your duty-free and, in some cases, pick up extra 
I bring them back, sell them. I have enough now for my next flight. Uh, the flight has only cost me 7 to 10 euro, so I have enough to go on my next one. Right. How much would you buy them for? Uh, well, the, the, the duty-free ones, I think, are running slightly higher than than the illegal ones. Uh, I think the, the average price of a duty-free packet of cigarettes is in or, in or around 8.50. Right, that's a, a lot cheaper, obviously, than the sixteen seventy-five. Half the price, and that's duty-free from the UK. Uh, it's a lot yeah. cheaper elsewhere. You can get cigarettes for oh, three. Oh yeah, so, so like, like even to buy them on the street elsewhere, they're cheaper, Michael. Hmm. But you you can get cigarettes for three or four euro in some countries, can't you? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, they they have began to push up their prices now. Up, they're going up now as high as uh, five fifty and six euro. Hmm. Okay, uh, and uh, do you think that uh, the cigarettes should be cheaper? Do you think that that would have an influence on uh, people smoking? Uh, do you think that it would prevent people from taking up cigarettes? Uh, no, I don't think so, Michael. Uh, like you know, like we have never advocated for cigarettes to be cheaper. We want what we want is a, play, a level playing pitch. You know, if you're going to allow the level of smuggling grow the way it's growing well, then we're going to have to do something about it. Mm. You know, we're doing practically nothing. Like we see, like It's the same as cocaine and, and, and all those hard drugs. We see the way the market is flooded with. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Like, a cigarettes is no different. Yeah. You can't blame people looking to save some money on cigarettes if they're addicted because it is a, a, a terrible addiction uh, and uh, people can't do without their cigarettes. Uh, but €6,000 a, a year to smoke 20 a day, isn't it? Yes, that's, that's, that, that's, that's it. You know, like we, we're, not blaming pe- we're not blaming the public for buying them. You know, mm. we're, blaming, we're blaming the situation that is there, that is allowing. Yeah. Like, the big problem for us is that it's criminality in general. Mm. that is supplying the, the the legal smoking market. But if you could get them for half price, uh, that would leave you with €3,000 to do something else with. Yes, but like, like we, like, as I say, we know we know the damage cigarettes is doing. So like, if they continue to say that they're doing all of this damage, well, then it's about time that they came out and said, well, you know, with this, product, this product is dangerous. Mm. You know, if that be the case. Hmm. 
At the same time, if you could get them for €4 euro a pack, uh, you'd uh, be talking uh, uh, about savings of maybe €4,000 over the year. That's, that's quite correct. That's quite correct. But like it's, you see, like mm. it's only now and it's only in the last two years that the government or the minister has come out and said it's for health reasons that these increases are being imposed. Up to that, it was for revenue collection. It wasn't for health reasons. It was revenue collection. Now, it's health reasons simply because of the fact that uh, the golden egg is gone as far as mm. uh, cigarettes are concerned for the g- revenue. Okay. For the government. Uh, can I ask you um, a question? I think I ask you every year. Seventy-five cent was put onto the price of a, a packet of cigarettes on Tuesday around midnight. Uh, first thing on Wednesday morning, some of the shops were charging sixteen seventy-five. How could that have been? Uh, well, this is up to each individual outlet, Michael. It's daylight you know, robbery. I, 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 Far be it from me to say that they should or they shouldn't. But as far as well, they shouldn't, should they? Because I mean, it's daylight robbery. Because uh, they wouldn't have to pay that extra seventy-five cent. They they bought they bought they bought the cigarette they bought the cigarettes at the old price. Uh, Quite possible, you know. But as on off midnight on Tuesday night. Cigarettes went up in price, as far as the government was concerned. As on off midnight on Tuesday night, you are liable to pay the extra in taxes on those cigarettes. Now, I yeah, can't... But you're, you're arguing on one hand that they should be cheaper, uh, but then uh, some no, no. some of the shops are, are charging people money uh, that they're not even entitled to charge. It's daylight robbery. That's 75 cents per pack uh, on packets of cigarettes that were bought before the increases. No, Michael, I'm not arguing that they should be cheaper. I'm arguing. I, my argument is nothing to do with the price. My argument is that we are not doing anything to stop or curtail the amount of illegal cigarettes that is coming into the country. You know, there's a huge difference in arguing on the price and arguing on what is coming in. Hmm. I imagine that cigarettes are, are sold probably in most shops today at sixteen seventy five, and I would imagine that most of those cigarettes were bought uh, a month ago uh, and uh, that the shops are just cashing in on the budget. Uh, and well, it's, the, it's, the, vulnerable, it's Michael, the, the vulnerable smokers who are victims again. I doubt if they were bought a month ago, Michael, because if somebody can afford to go out and spend that kind of money on enough cigarettes to carry them for a month, they're fairly well off. Well, a week or two weeks like ago, the, then. If they buy them for yeah. a week, well, if they bought them last week, day yeah. to day. Mm. Well, I, ima- I imagine some were wise enough to put some money away, knowing that there was seventy-five cent uh, tax-free, if you like, uh, to be gained on every packet of cigarettes. Uh, quite possible, if uh, if they have if they have the spare cash, uh, yes, uh, they might they might have done so. But then, in most cases, the spare cash would be more and better spent on product that is harder to get today than this time last year. But is there that not daylight robbery? Uh, well, it's, it's no different to the excise duty that went on fuel, Michael. Mm. That went on... Actually, I saw that on Tuesday night. Mm. I went to mm. fill up on Tuesday night, and the price of fuel had gone up two cents a litre from Tuesday morning. Okay. So... Is it that two rights make a wrong? No. Or two no, wrongs I'm make a right? <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that that is what the government brought in. They stipulated 
in the budget when he's reading it out. As of midnight tonight, the price goes up by 75 cent. As of midnight tonight, the excise duty goes up on the fuel. Yeah, but the excise duty uh, wouldn't be paid to government on cigarettes that were bought last week. No, of course it could. When you're doing your returns, Michael, it has to be paid. Okay, so if you sell cigarettes today at uh, sixteen seventy-five, uh, that's when you'd be paying the duty, is it? The duty would be paid on your on your returns when you're doing your returns. That's a, it's that that extra seventy-five cent is going to show an extra seventy-five cent profit on the packet of cigarettes that you have sold. Hmm. Okay. Even though you bought them last week. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. That would be seventy-five cent extra that they're getting. So you would be putting that into your figures when you're doing your returns at the end of the year. That you would be that extra profit is there. Okay. Well, I know that some people do feel aggrieved that some shops are, are slower to put up the price than others, uh, and wonder why they go up uh, immediately in some shops. Yeah, I, I understand that, and, and you know, from my own perspective, they haven't gone up and they won't go up until such time as uh, new cigarettes have to be purchased. Okay. Well. I'm sure people will appreciate that, Benny. Uh, thank you right. indeed, though, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. It really is a, a lot of money, as I say. I don't know if it's cheaper to have a, a cocaine habit uh, than to smoke. Sixteen seventy-five for 20 cigarettes. Uh, it's a cost of €6,000 a year if uh, you're smoking 20 a day. Uh, some messages coming to us. Cocaine has been rife in Ireland uh, since the 1960s, uh, according to one of our callers, Betty Daly, uh, texting us as well, saying, Michael, the uh, the drugs or most drug users take drugs for recreational purposes. They want to go to heaven without dying. They're never happy with all of uh, the good things that they already have. Health uh, cars, a house and four holidays a year. They've nothing more to wish for. Thank you indeed, Betty Daly uh, for your text. Uh, Desi in Balbriggan uh, texting us as well saying, uh, would you ask that man if he'll book my next flights to London if he can get them for 7 or 10 euros. Thanks, Desi, uh, for that and uh, to everybody who's been in touch with us. If you'd like to comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can ring us on 0419832000 and tell us what's on your mind. That's 0419832000. You can text a message to us or WhatsApp your text to us 0861800658 if you want to text or WhatsApp, that's 086-1800-658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Israel has mobilised 360,000 reservists as it prepares for war in Gaza. It's cut off electricity, fuel and water. An emergency unity government has uh, been formed and an emergency war cabinet established. Gaza is now without power and tens of thousands of army personnel are at the border. Let's uh, speak to people before Prophet TD, Gino Kenny, who's on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Gino. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. It looks like we're going to see a massacre unfold. Yeah, Michael. Um, I mean, we're six days into this situation that's, well, I would say we're longer than six days, we're decades in relation to this situation. And, um, I mean, all the indications that the Israelis will invade uh, the Gaza Strip, which is a very, very densely 
um, populated area. There's two million people living in a uh, an area of like twelve kilometers by five. And mm. uh, there's you know, so it's going to be a bloodbath. Yeah, the size um, the, the two million people living in an area the size of County Louth. Yeah, and mm. that's basically what it is. And the Israelis, I mean, they're one of the most um, advanced armies in the world. They have uh, enormous amount of high tech weapons, whether from the sky. Or, or from the land, or from the sea, and you know they have laid siege to Gaza for the last seventeen years. Um, so they know, you know, how to brutalise the people. So the situation for the people of Gaza is is probably as bleak as there ever was since nineteen forty eight. Yeah, uh, and whose fault is that? Do you think? Uh, because uh, I mean, the actions of Hamas have been condemned far and wide. Yeah, well, look at you know. There needs to be a settlement, a peace settlement, where people can co-exist, whether they're Jewish, Muslim, Christian, or non-believers, or everything in between. People have to co-exist. And that's the ultimate settlement, a settlement that needs to happen. Um, But as long as you have an oppressor, such as the Israeli state, from the foundation of the state, where it's a brutally oppressed the Palestinian people by ethnic cleansing and constantly kind of uh, through the kind of occupation, then people will resist. It's just, I mean, we've, we've seen this across the world, we've seen this in this country. When they're occupied, people will, you know, fight back and they're very right to fight back, mm. you know. And when you throw the, the sense of hopelessness in, you know, in particularly in rounds in, 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 the Ga- in the Gaza Strip, you know, situations will arise where people will do absolutely terrible things terrible things to other to other people mm. and that's what's kind of playing out and there's no winners Michael there's mm. no winners yeah. no, I, 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 I think uh, the majority of people in this country uh, if I'm not mistaken uh, would support the Palestinian people but would also feel yeah. that while they have the right to fight back because they are an oppressed people while they have the right to fight back uh, it's the way that you fight back uh, and uh, what happened on Saturday could never be justified uh, and would never be justified by the family of Kim Dante who are burying their young daughter today. Yeah, and it's terrible, Michael. You know, and you see reports, you know, the last number of days where you see mothers and fathers crying out for their loved ones. Regardless, of, you know, if they're Jewish or Palestinian, it's awful, it's awful. But you have to give this context in relation to the last 75 years. Why are people fighting back? Why do people do things that we don't agree with? Um, And this cycle of violence and perpetual violence has to stop. And the only way to stop it is not militarily. It's not possible because even if Hamas are destroyed, Mm. the the people of Palestine have every right to resist uh, the, the, the Israelis. And so there needs to be a peace settlement where people can live together. And the only way to do that is to sit down and, you know, cash out things through a political settlement. Mm. We've seen that to a certain degree in the north of Ireland, uh, where there generally has been peace in relation to kind of a conflict that just went on for decades and decades. Mm. But there needs to be a settlement. And if we don't have a settlement, well, then... This is going to happen and keep happening and happening again. I can't can't understand why Hamas did it. Uh, Can you, Gino? I I mean, my first reaction when I saw what was an atrocity 
uh, uh, and yeah. an act of terrorism on Saturday. Uh, to kill innocent yeah. people the way Hamas did was... What are they thinking of? Uh, this is is no. this a suicide wish? Uh, the Palestinian people are going to be slaughtered. Yeah. Well, Michael, the only thing I can think of, and there's a number of, I suppose, factors, but the main factor that I can kind of comprehend is that the sense of hopelessness. If you were to live in a small part, such as County Loud, of two million people, and it's it's under siege for the last number of decades... I'm not sure what's happening here. We've uh, some kind of uh, problem with the audio. Uh, I'm told Gino Kenny is on the line and uh, can be heard, but I'm not hearing Gino Kenny. Uh, maybe we'll uh, be able to get back to that. Uh, I hope you can hear me for that matter. I'm just uh, a bit confused as to what's going on at the moment. Uh, but if you can hear me, I just uh, want to refer to a text message from Paddy Duffy, uh, which is uh, to do with uh, the size of Gaza. And he says it's actually slightly less than half the size uh, of Louth, uh, just for information purposes. Uh, well, very interesting information, Paddy, because I, I thought uh, it contextualised it very well uh, when you heard that Gaza was uh, the size of Louth, because I've heard that said uh, repeatedly. And the idea of two million people living in County Louth uh, and no way out which is uh, one of the really frightening parts of, of what's happening now in Gaza, given the might of uh, the Israeli army. But you're, you're probably talking about the equivalent of four million people living in County Loud. The Paddy is right if it is, the, uh, if, if Gaza is only half the size. Uh, but for so many people to be on top of each other uh, and no way out, uh, well, uh, as I said earlier on, I, I don't know what Hamas was thinking of. Uh, was it a suicide wish? Uh, I'm told uh, we've uh, Gino Kenny back o- on the line. Uh, Gino, thanks for coming back to us. I'm not sure what the problem was there. You were saying no uh, it was a, an act of desperation or possibly an act of desperation that things were just so bad that they felt they had yeah. to do something. I mean, obviously, the Gaza Strip has been under blockade and siege for the last 16, 17 years. And to try to understand in some way is that the sense of hopelessness and desperation by a people, you know, to, I suppose, fight back. No, I don't agree with it. But that is the only way you can try to understand. Not to not to agree with it, but try to understand the kind of the desperate situation where all Palestinians are in, where there is no, no, there doesn't seem to be any sort of inkling of a settlement, you know. And the Israeli government, particularly Netanyahu, mm. is hell-bent on, on conflict. Not even now. He was held bound to conflict since he's been in peril for the with last the, With, with the support of the world, uh, we heard uh, a little bit earlier on interaction between uh, your party colleague Richard Boyd Barrett and the Taoiseach. There wasn't the consensus there. Uh, but in fairness, Ar- Ireland has acted uh, appropriately in calling uh, for... Um, at least uh, that there wouldn't be an escalation in the violence. Yeah. Ireland, Luxembourg and Denmark called for that, uh, but they were voted down and it was not in- included in a European Union statement. Israel appears to have the support of uh, America and the European Union and most of the Western world. Of course. I mean, the United States is, at this moment in time, arming Israel, uh, which, are, which Israel at this moment in time are committing a war crime by stopping any sort of water supply, any sort of energy, or any sort of medical supplies going into Gaza Strip. This is a war crime. And the United States is continually 
uh, arming Israel, and they've been not only arm, they've been arming Israel since its existence. So they have skin in the game as such. In relation to the European Union, when they have basically turned a blind eye in relation to the crimes of Israel over the last fifty years. You know, if the, in Israel is an apartheid state model, and it's a, it's a, it's an abnormal state where it brutally brutally oppresses the people of Palestine on an everyday basis, and you know, the EU and Israel have one of the biggest uh, economical deals in relation to the European Union. So, you know, why normalise occupation? Why normalise oppression? And once that happens, then, you know, they're going to... Israel, Israel are going to think with impunity they can carry out anything. And they have been, you know, on a daily basis. So that's why people obviously are hugely empathetic to the people of Palestine. Because we understand what it, is, or what it is to be occupied and brutally oppressed. Um, but there needs to be a settlement. There needs to be a kind of where people can say, look, I can live here and I can live there peacefully. But the Israelis are not interested in that. Mm. Let's be honest. They are not interested. It's a perpetual conflict. And the only, the only way to, to, to actually the Israeli state as an apartheid state to actually exist is to be in perpetual conflict. Mm. That's, just the, that's just the reality. Mm. I wish it was different than that. Maybe things will change over time, uh, but I just think the situation is actually going to get worse. Yeah. And it's going to get a lot worse. Well, a lot worse, yeah. And uh, I think we have to brace ourselves for rivers of blood and an awful lot of deaths, uh, hundreds of thousands yeah. of deaths in Gaza. Uh, people are uh, about to be slaughtered and they have no way out. Innocent civilians. Gino, thank you yeah. indeed, as always, for Thanks, joining Michael, us on the programme. That's uh, People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, when it comes to next year's budget, I think it's true uh, that if you listen to the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking in the Dáil yesterday, he was clearly disappointed with the allocation to his department. The €100 million Euro in new development funding is to build on investments already in train. Right, so any money that is given in addition to what the health budget was last year has already been spent. Like in many other countries, we are seeing an extraordinary increase in demand for services against a backdrop of very high inflation. As a result, the majority of this year's budgetary funding is focused on absorbing price inflation and meeting growing patient demand. Already gone, but does that mean that we are investing enough in health in this country? There's a misconception that Ireland spends more on health care than other comparable countries. We don't. Of the 15 Western European countries, Ireland ranks 11th in terms of spending on healthcare per person, accounting for local prices. Germany, the Netherlands, Austria, Belgium, France, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, Luxembourg, Denmark. They all spend more per capita on healthcare than we do. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Let's speak to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan. Uh, a very good morning to you, David, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it looks as though the health service is going to go from whatever crises it faced into last year into a similar year the year ahead. Well, I think it's quite unprecedented what we saw in this year's budget and health. And it's no surprise to me that the the overall media narrative has been that Stephen Donnelly has been essentially thrown under the bus. 
But I don't see it as, as straightforward as that. As I see it, the leaders of the three main parties have thrown the health service under the bus, patients and those who work on the front line, because the bottom line is, and, and anybody that understands how the health service needs to be funded next year, we have massively underfunded healthcare in terms of what's needed even to stand still. And we all know that there is going to be an overspend this year in the region of over a billion euros, so somewhere between 1.1 and 1.4 billion. It is absolutely certain now that that overrun for next year will be even higher. And Stephen Donnelly is right in saying that a lot of the additional uh, cost in healthcare is down to health inflation, which is something that's universal. Health inflation is running at about 15%. We have higher demand because of a growth in population, because we have a number of illnesses that were circulating, as we know, last winter that put more pressure on our healthcare system. But also, we simply didn't put the capacity in over the last number of years. And, and that's something that many people who work in the healthcare sphere and advocate groups have been saying also for some time. But we now have an extraordinary situation that the government has signed off on a budget with a massive black hole in, in the health uh, area and they will have to spend that money anyway next year or cut back on services and and that's now important mm. for the government to point out exactly what they will do and I'm very concerned because there's no new money for hospitals no new uh, additional beds the minister was out promising 1500 rapid build beds mm. over the next two years and the only thing rapid in relation to those beds is that they have rapidly disappeared because there is no mention of them in the budget no new money for new medicines, which means every year when new innovative drugs for cancer and other um, uh, illnesses come on stream, uh, new money is made available to ensure that uh, patients have access to those drugs. No new money in that area this year. No new money for mental health um, and for a whole range of other areas. And this is at a time when we know that we have a real crisis in hospitals, nearly a million people on some form of health waiting list from hospitals to communities and diagnostics. And we know that the wait times in emergency departments can be horrific. Mm. So I think it's going to be a very, very difficult, very challenging year in health. Um, and, and what's worse is that we have a government that have intentionally and purposely underfunded the health service, potentially maybe to punish Stephen Donnelly and the head of the Department of Health. And, and for that, I don't know why. And that doesn't make sense. And whatever about the internal wranglings of government and the bottom line is the people who will suffer here are patients and those who work in our health service. Right. Uh, Has the money not been mismanaged? Uh, I mean, it's quite incredible to go over budget by a a billion euro or 1.1 or 1.4 or or possibly even more than that. Well, I think part of it, and it's a very small part, so part of the overspend certainly is in areas like overtime, agency spend, management consultancy, outsourcing of care and I've been pointing that out uh, for many many years and in last year's budget we then identified areas where money could be saved. It's only in the last number of months that the head of the HSE, Bernard Gloucester, has now put in place cost containment plans in relation to the hiring of senior management, in relation to management consultancy, there's an awful lot more that can be done but even if we were to achieve all of the savings that can be achieved in those areas and I think that has been a failure of the Minister for Health and of the HSE. We can't get away from the fact that in last year's budget, the, the government provided only £300 million for new measures. We would have advocated at that point last year an additional spend of £1.1 billion 
to ensure that the beds were put in the system, that we had the investment in primary care and community care to ensure that people who needed to be treated outside of hospitals uh, had those opportunities. That didn't happen. And it was inevitable in the consequence of not having that capacity that there would be additional constraints on the health service, more reliance on overtime of staff and then more outsourcing to private hospitals at a greater cost. Mm. So these are mistakes made by the government. And I wouldn't say mistakes. These are intentional decisions made by the government not to properly fund the health service over the last number of years. And then there's that bigger point, uh, Michael, and it doesn't matter who is the Minister for Health or who's in government. Health inflation at the moment is exceptionally high. It's running, depending on, on, on the area, but it's running generally somewhere between 15 and 20% globally. Uh, that means that the cost of healthcare just has gone up because of inflation. And unless inflation comes down quite dramatically, um, those increases are not going to come down, which means that whatever the costs were last year, the costs will be this year. And, and you have to fund those. And if you don't fund those, then you either have to run and overspend next year, which is, I think, inevitable, or you start to cut back on services. And mm. it's important now for the Minister for Health and the government to set out what they're going to do. But I'm very, very concerned, and I, I'm not in any way playing politics with this because it's too serious. I'm very concerned about the levels of underfunding in healthcare and the impact it will have on our health services, given that we know we that we will face into a very busy winter in our hospitals. Uh, we know there's pressures on GP capacity. Uh, we know that there's already pressures on patients accessing drugs and new medicines. And, and in so many areas of healthcare, children with scoliosis and spina bifida, all of those areas yeah. where we know there's long wait times, that can only get worse. And even all of the national strategies from cancer, uh, cardiovascular, maternity, they got not one cent, which means all of those strategies are now on hold essentially for a year. Yeah, and that can't be good. Well, for- it starts now, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, they're trying to claw back money now uh, with the recruitment freeze and no money for drugs. Uh, but that's uh, to try and reduce the level of deficit. Uh, I think the HSE is saying it expects to be around one and a half billion. Uh, the Business Post was reporting a couple of weeks ago it could be as much as two billion. Uh, but. Uh, you can't plan to overspend, can you? Uh, or, or uh, I mean, why have budgets if that's the case? And that's the clear worry that I have because my concern is, and again, it's not because we may get our chance in government, and obviously I hope that we do, but I have a big concern that the deficit this year and the overrun in health we know can be anywhere from 1.1 billion to 1.4 billion. There will be a need for a supplementary estimate in, in health towards the end of the year so that that cash can be given to to the HSE to pay for the healthcare system. So that will have to be paid anyway. It's going to be even bigger next year and no what's called baseline funding or permanent funding was put into the health service for next year to deal with what was the overspend this year. That means that, in my view, that black hole that was in health this year will be even bigger next year. And then we're storing up what is an even bigger deficit. And if a new government does come in, we'll be landed with a big black hole in the Department of Health and the HSE's finances. It's not a way to run budgets. It's certainly not a way to run the health service. And it's very clear from discussions I've had with senior officials in the department that they believe that this is not in any way a true and accurate budget to fund the health service. Uh, And it's a massive fudge not to put permanent funding in to deal with what will be the need to fund the health services this year. But I would imagine for people listening to this programme, 
uh, numbers and talking about billions is is not something that uh, is is going to exercise their minds. Minds. It's what impact does this have on the health service? And the bottom line is, none of the beds that were promised will now be delivered. No additional money of substance for healthcare. Only 100 million of new measures, most of which uh, are just carryover measures from last year. No new money for drugs. Uh, no new money for hospitals to deal with the overcrowding or the waiting lists. No money for disabilities or mental health. And all of these are areas in crisis. And again, all of those national strategies from maternity to cancer to cardiac, it's inevitable that this will have uh, outcomes for patients which are not good and for people who work in the healthcare system. So anybody that truly understands the healthcare system, the level of funding that's needed, and I've spoken to many groups over the last number of days, there is a real anxiety and a real concern that while the commentary is that the minister has been thrown under the bus, in reality, patients and those who work on the front line in, health ser- in the health service are the ones now under that bus. And I think that's an appalling thing mm. to do in the context of the billions of euros that we're hearing about that was spent in the budget. And yet in one of the big areas that needed to be dealt with health, they've underfunded the health service, thrown in the towel and made a mess of it. And we know housing is very similar. So I think we're in for a very rocky time ahead in the healthcare system and even when I was putting some of these points to Stephen Donnelly yesterday in the doll I spoke just after he did he was nodding his head in agreement when I was making the point that this will make it very difficult and worse for the health services next year so I would imagine he's very disappointed but who'll be more disappointed uh, would be patients and those who work in the healthcare system Mm. Uh, and when you talk about trolley figures, uh, which is one uh, gauge of how hospitals are operating, uh, but a very important one at that, uh, it's been a dreadful year. Nine hundred, more than nine hundred patients, nearly a thousand patients on trolleys one day in January. Are you saying that we can expect that to be repeated, or that those figures could even be higher? Well. I'd also be fair and say that we're still spending a lot of money on healthcare. So what we're talking talking about here is not uh, funding any new measures, but also what's called existing levels of service, which is standing still money to cover increases in inflation and pay and so on, so that whatever services were provided last year, so the same services can be provided next year. You have to provide for those additional costs. That hasn't been done. Uh, and that's an accounting issue that could have consequences if the government decides to cut back on services. But there, there are things that can be done to um, to achieve greater efficiencies in hospitals. And I've pointed this out before, Michael, in relation to St. Luke's in Kilkenny, University Hospital Waterford, um, and in other hospitals as well, where a huge amount of work has been done to reduce the number of patients on trolleys. In fact, in the case of Waterford, we've had no patients on trolleys for two years. So there are efficiencies better way of using the resources and the capacity that the health service have that should also be deployed because uh, while, yes, there is a need for more investment in healthcare, there is absolutely a need also to ensure that we have reforms in how healthcare is delivered yeah. to secure efficiencies, value for money and bang for buck. And I set out in a very co- comprehensive plan I published a number of weeks ago what we in Sinn Féin would do to achieve some of that. Um, but the crisis right now, the imminent crisis for the health service, is that we have a big black hole in the health budget, a perception that the minister was thrown under the bus, uh, obviously tensions within government in relation to health spending. And um, that doesn't bode well for the Minister for Health and, and how he sees within Cabinet, but that's obviously a matter for government. But my concern isn't any of that, because that's all politics. It's about what impact 
this will have on patients and people who work in the health service. And we know that there's huge pressure and uh, strain on those who work on the front line. And, and I have no doubt that they will be really angry about the fact that the health services that they work in uh, has not been given the resources and they won't have the tools and the capacity now that they need to treat patients in, in the way that they should. Indeed. Um, Indeed. And, and for me, that's, that's uh, obviously the responsibility of the three leaders of, of the parties and government. Okay, and the ironic thing about it is, of course, that uh, it'll be uh, a bigger amount of money spent on health next year than ever before, a record health budget of €22.5 billion. Euro. Uh, but it will fall short, there is no doubt, it seems. David Cullen and Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Some of uh, the messages coming to us, and thanks to everybody in touch. Michael, unlike the war in Ukraine, the people of Gaza can't flee. They're virtually sitting ducks for the Israeli army, says somebody WhatsApping us. Another text from Noel who says, Gino Kenny has it spot on. An act of desperation by Hamas. The Israelis are murdering Palestinians a long time, and not a word out of the international community. Palestinian lives are not as important as. Israelites. Thank you, Noel. Somebody else says, scrap all religion. Maybe that is the solution. Uh, a text on cigarettes from somebody who says 200 cigarettes at Dublin Airport. The lowest price is 41 euro. But a lot of the time they may be out of stock because people are stockpiling. Rarely any questions asked. We go to the UK almost every second week and buy three cartons per trip for friends and family. But I spoke to a person who is soon travelling to Lanzarote. He doesn't smoke and he plans to fill a suitcase with duty-free cigarettes to sell. I, I don't agree with it, but certainly lucrative. The average cost of a carton 200 is 55 euro but as i'm saying a cheaper brand can be had for 41. Thanks indeed. Very interesting information. Now, yesterday on the programme, uh, we were speaking with the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, about Garda numbers and the hopes for around 800 recruits over the course of uh, the next year to be deployed to, to our streets. Uh, it's a point that was picked up afterwards in the Dáil. And it's just, it's just a statement of, of, of fact, Minister. Um, you know, it was in, in 2018 we had 318 sworn Guardian County Meads, so so, um, five years later, we're back to that point. Um, that, that's just a statement of fact. And um, welcome the additional funding in, in, in the budget. But um, we know recruitment is significantly behind the targets. You know, so 800 for 2022, 300 uh, were, were recruited, uh, 1,000 for this year. Um, I heard you on radio this morning saying you'd aim for, for uh, hope for, for 800. Can I ask the question, and it comes up repeatedly, um, is there objective criteria for resource allocation? You know, um, I, I take the point in terms of population growth, but is there, you know, is an issue of rurality? Is it an issue of, you know, the influence of chief superintendents and the, and the business case that they can make? Is it an issue of crime statistics? Is it an issue of population? Uh, what is it that determines, uh, and I, I appreciate it's a, it's a matter for the... Um, for the Garda Commissioner, but are there? Have you raised this with the with the Thank with the, the Garda Commissioner? Are there objective criteria for resource allocation? Statement of fact that the Garda College was closed, so that has resulted in uh, skewed figures, not just in County Meath but all over the country. Um, last year, I allocated one 
uh, enough money for 1,000 new recruits. Uh, what we will see with the intake this week and at the end of the year uh, is closer to 800, if not slightly beyond 800, uh, either in the college, in training or gone through the college. So it's not 1,000, but it's not too far off. Uh, if you look at similar recruitment campaigns just before COVID-19, we had about 5,000 people apply uh, in that last campaign. The most recent one, 5,000 people applied as well. So we're actually not that far off. What I'm trying to do is be as ambitious as possible, acknowledging that COVID put a dent in the really positive numbers that we saw coming through the college, coupled with a particular period in time now where we have retirements because of when people went into the college 30-odd years ago or in around then. But nothing is off the table when it comes to increasing our Garda numbers. I will have something from the Garda Commissioner, I hope very shortly, uh, around increasing the age in which people can join. I've been engaging with my colleague in public expenditure and reform around the retirement age in itself. How can we increase that and keep many of the Garda we have? How can we make sure, uh, as I discussed with your colleague Pat Daly earlier, Deputy Daly, how can we make sure the Garda that we have are taken off non-core duties where other civilian Thank staff you, can do it and how can we continue to invest in civilian staff and guard the reserve as well so when all of this comes together and it is all coming together what we'll see is not just an increase in county meads but we'll see an increase in guard the numbers and visibility right across the country which is what all of us want here that's uh, minister for justice helen McEntee responding uh, to Sinn Féin's darren o'rourke uh, finna gales for o'dowd had more questions for the minister uh, i welcome your uh, comments there and particularly the reassurance for the whole country uh, that we will have more Gardaí, that they will be better looked after in the context of further training, and that you're going to uh, have additional Garda Reserve present. Can I just ask a question without going into the detail, and I appreciate uh, the question of why you know, that people do resign as opposed to retire, uh, and if you're talking about tackling that at both the retention end, have you studied or commissioned any report as to why or how we can keep people in the service, what are the reasons, if you have them, why they're leaving, what reasons they give. And secondly, uh, the question of the retirement age. I think, um, you know, what's your view on that? I appreciate you saying that you're looking at it. I think if you can hold on to people uh, who have huge service, who can serve in a different capacity with the expert, uh, knowledge and experience to have would be very beneficial as well. In terms of the overall numbers, and, and I suppose we knew and I knew that we would most likely see a drop in numbers, um, but we've gone below 14,000, but we're now in a position where that number is steadying. And we're now, I think, after the next intake, most likely in a position where we're beyond 14,000 again, and we're moving uh, in the right direction um, because of the closure of the college during COVID-19. Um, because of the fact that we're coming into a period of time where many members are retiring. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. That's our programme for today. Maggie Maguire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.